The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The House Show. For over 22 weeks, the revolutionary force in retro sports entertainment podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, the Retro Network proudly presents to you the Trios Tag Team Champions of the World, the Master Library Kevin Hellions, Sweet Maddie Treats, and the Educator of Excellence, collectively known as The House Show. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of The House Show. It is me, as always, Mr. Maddie Treats, and I am joined by my trios tag team champions of the world, undisputed tag team champions of the world, laying waste to any three podcast hosts, um, you know, men, whatever you want to. Jabronis. Jabronis in the world. To my right, the enforcer of education, the excellence. Uh, uh, what's your name again? I'm so confused. <laughs> the educator of excellence, the enforcer of intelligence. How are you? <laughs> hey, what's going on, sirs? Hello, everybody. Tuning in to hear our take on the Unforgiven pay-per-view from April 1998. Looking forward to this show, powering through another three-hour telecast show and uh, taking a look at what happened uh, post-WrestleMania 14. Yeah, the Austin era. Uh, We are well into it. Uh, So you've heard him in the background. You hear him every week on the show, folks. It is none other than the masked library, Kevin Hellions. Kevin, how are you? I am doing well. You know, ever since last week's show and the Pantera references... I was debating on doing Metallica references this week for Unforgiven. Chose not to. Sad but true. I know. So, guys, there is something burning on my mind this week. um, And I I have to bring it up. Um, And I want to talk to the educator. Educator. Yes, sir. How was your how was your boat cruise that you went on today? What the people don't know at home is we said we were going to tape this podcast like seven hours ago, but the educator out yachting it up, out yachting it up. Oh boy. Plenty of, uh, shenanigans going on on the St. Lawrence river these days, uh, trying to take advantage of the sunshine and the, uh, warm weather, having a great time with some friends and family and, Sorry, the boat ride went a little bit longer than expected. How do you social distance on on the boat? It's that big a boat. It's that big of a boat. Was this one of the P. Diddy shrimping boats? No, it's probably a 24, 26-foot boat. Uh, Certainly has a big enough cabin to sleep in. Uh, I think it sleeps four. And... Uh, bathroom, kitchen, all, all the, all the, all the, all the glitz and glamour, you know. Um, so, need, but there was nine of us on the boat. We had a good time, though. Were you able to see a Fozzie concert? Was this a Jericho cruise? Definitely was not a Jericho cruise. Definitely stayed away from the Fozzie. So, see, when he said he had to go check out some locks, I assumed he meant the school locker situation. Ah, uh, yes. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to get the boating in before. Uh... 
before the world implodes. <laughs> so right. just enjoy it. Well, anyways, guys, let's get right into Unforgiven in your house. It is April 26th, 1998. We are in Greensboro, North Carolina at the Greensboro Coliseum Complex. A sold out crowd of over 21,000 people. Insane. Quick question. What country is, is Greensboro in? America. The Flair United country. States of America. Flair country. Flair country. Why do you say that? Oh, all right. Uh, so I assumed you guys knew this story. Um, I'm going to. Flair was going to be there. Right. He was circling the limo. Yeah. All right. So. Flair was supposed to, the rumor was he was going to show up because he was having a contract dispute with WCW. And then uh, one rumor I heard is they were going to say, we want to interview a, a champion front row here. And they're going to interview Reed with, because he had just won like some college or amateur wrestling tournament or something, but have Rick stand right next to him and not say anything. So technically they could get away with it. I think too, isn't there a Flair chant during this uh, event? There is. Right. Yep, I'm sure we will. And even and Jim Ross even slips in a, a, a when there was a crowd pop. He even he mentioned, "Wow, what was it? this is if as if Ric Flair walked in the building or something along those lines." So, so why don't we get right into it? Because we are. Uh, uh, let's do a little countdown here. Ten, three, two. One ten three two one is our sponsor for this amazing event. <laughs> um, one thing I noticed, and I don't know. Um, if uh, if you guys noticed this or if you know, but the music doesn't really fit the pyro at the beginning of it. Is this dubbed over music for the network or do you think this was the actual music that they used? Um, it sounded like it was the actual music. It was just didn't the vibe didn't fit whatsoever. Didn't seem like it fit at all either. I don't believe it was a dub over. Uh, I, I picked up on what you're saying. Just things seemed off in the presentation. A lot of weird edits on this show. So there's definitely something, uh, I don't know what, but there's definitely something that got taken out or adjusted or whatever later on. Yeah, there's a lot of hard hard cuts. Uh, has to be commercials. I, I think that's a safe bet that we have discussed on previous shows. Uh, but the first match we got is the Nation of Domination, but not just any Nation of Domination, the Rocks Nation of Domination. Um, and they're taking on Farouk, Shamrock, and Steve Blackman, who do the Nation of Domination salute before the match even begins? What what's going on here, guys? I, I honestly I don't know. We see the Nation of Domination with now Rocky as the sole leader, so to speak. They come to the ring with a new riff version of their entrance music. So while in the match, Rocky, D'Lo, and Mark Henry are the competitors. We see. Uh, Kama Mustafa, who is slowly tiptoeing towards the Godfather-esque gimmick with the bolo-like hat and the and the sunglasses as he's walking to ringside as well. And then we see the babyface team of Ken Shamrock, Farouk, Steve Blackman. They come out to uh, Ken Shamrock's music, but we've got Farouk front and center, and they all together do the Nation of Domination hand gesture salute to the crowd. It was awkward. It seemed very out of place. If Farouk was starting a new nation, even if it was some sort of like Savion Crush 
uh, again, I guess, like, but to pull Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman out there, who, I mean, I can only think of one more person that would look more out of place in the nation. I think that happens in a month or two, for real. Yeah, it just it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, but what did you guys think of this match? Is it a pretty good opener? I thought it was great back and forth uh, as an opener. I was wondering if you guys noticed that Shamrock never tagged into the match. Nope. And he was visibly frustrated. At least it came off as visible frustration. Every time that Farouk and Steve Blackman would tag in and out, he's like reaching his arm out and they're like ignoring him, skipping him. Do you guys believe Shamrock had an injury or was there something going on? Maybe he wasn't technically medically cleared or something. Or, or was it just a goof up in timing and they forgot to get Shamrock's part in? The only part that he had in the match was the six-man melee at the very, very end where the finish came. And that was it. I, I believe he was banged up. Back injury or something. Knew going into it he wasn't going to be able to do a whole lot in the match. Um, Farouk just kind of wanted, you know part-time schedule you know a day off because he's barely in it too there's a lot of people that are barely in this match very and much steve, so steve blackman and Delo work this match very well for the most part um and and steve being you know fairly new to wwf too um but no i guess canton shamrock had something going on but they couldn't get a replacement they just brought him out there they're like it's a tag match just stay on that side get your pay go home so we see Farouk wearing still his old Nation of Domination gear with the colors. D'Lo Brown and Mark Henry still have these similar colors in their ring gear. Rock has the rock plastered along the backside of his ring gear. So he certainly is setting himself apart as being different or as the leader of the group itself. I felt it was a great opener. We see Farouk start off the match or get involved in the match with D'Lo Brown. He hits a very impressive looking spine buster on D'Lo and then digs out of his tights a the like belt that normally he would have wrapped around his waist when he would come to the ring and starts whipping D'Lo with the belt. And we hear JR come up with one of the more notable lines that he is known for is talking about how Farouk is whipping D'Lo like a government mule. We see uh, Mark Henry eventually tagged in, and Steve Blackman is also tagged in. Mark Henry's initial moves on Blackman, they seemed very poorly timed. Mark Henry continues to look awkward in the ring, but he does tag in and out a decent amount in the match and does get some decent offensive flurry. Eventually, we see D'Lo tagged back into the match. He hits that sky-high powerbomb where he scoops under the two armpits and jumps up in the air and does a sit-out powerbomb on Steve Blackman. D'Lo ends up tagging The Rock in, and when The Rock gets his initial tag into the match, he gets major heel heat from the crowd. He hits a stiff clothesline on Farouk, who eventually also got tagged into the match. Eventually, Mark Henry tags back in. He hits a very nice-looking power slam on Blackman, when who was running the ropes. Rockets tagged back in. He reverses an Irish whip and ends up hitting a short arm clothesline to Steve Blackman, and that got a pretty good crowd heat response. There was a very, very awkward looking interaction 
uh, back and forth between Blackman and The Rock. We talk about how on the last show we saw an ugly-looking inside cradle from the wrestling god JBL during his match with Jeff Jarrett. We see a very, very even more uglier version of when Steve Blackman tried to do an inside cradle on Rocky, who was running the ropes itself. Rock sets up Steve Blackman and hits, again, still unnamed at this time, the people's elbow. And what was cool about this particular version of his people's elbow, he runs the ropes, and right about as he's about to drop the elbow, he just stops and like waves his hands like, nope, I'm not going to do it, and then just snaps and drops an elbow, and that just got major, major crowd pop for that. We see D'Lo eventually get tagged back in, and he is working on Blackman, and you're right, uh, Hellions, it, I, most of my notes I am talking about it's D'Lo and Blackman. Uh, working along with each other. D'Lo ends up setting up for a moonsault, and you could tell just based on Blackman's positioning, unfortunately, that when he climbed to the rope, he was absolutely going to miss this, and Steve Blackman did roll out of the way. Eventually, Steve Blackman makes the supposed hot tag to Farouk, and again, Ken Shamrock, not at all, tagging in legally for the match. Farouk gets tagged in, but then all six men end up getting in the ring, and there's brawling back and forth. Must be, uh, maybe I just missed it, must be D'Lo did tag in The Rock because eventually as the ring clears, we see D'Lo outside of the ring and instead The Rock and Farouk are going back and forth in the ring and Farouk ends up uh, hitting Rocky in the gut and kicking him in the gut, gets the dominator. And one of the things I noticed about this finish was that you know, Farouk has been well known to be such a big jack, super strong guy. Watching Farouk pick up Rocky for the Dominator and just again how long and how big Rocky's body is and Rocky almost having to like push his hands down because he wasn't high enough on Farouk's shoulders to get snapped back down for that Dominator. It was just very, very impressive. Such a big guy for Farouk to pick up. And just, again, we're so used to a much leaner Rock these days. Whenever we see him, a very jacked Rock. Rock was a big, thick boy back then. So Farouk hits the Dominator. We get a 1-2-3 victory. And uh, the faces celebrate in the ring. And eventually, afterwards, we get these unique uh, post-match interviews. And Michael Cole ringside ends up interviewing Farouk, who was very happy uh, and thankful for his two partners and their contributions and how the the butt whippings are just going to continue. And now he's going to have a setup for the Intercontinental title with The Rock at the following pay-per-view. I think the match does a lot for Farouk because he the nation and his singles run and the gladiator outfit and all, like, he never got. I don't know, respect, acclaim, whatever for it. But this was good. He can always say he's got a pinfall victory over The Rock and, and right. never have that taken away, you know? Absolutely. And and you see it, not so much for Ken Shamrock, Steve Blackman, of course, but the nation, like, how obvious it is that Farouk is a mentor and a teacher to all of them. Like, how important he must have been in the lives of the, uh, comma aside, these rookies at the time. Like, it, it, I have... I'm still frustrated how he was brought in. 
Ron Simmons being the first black WCW champion is not Farouk in the WWF. I wish he got at least an Intercontinental title run. But all the stuff I've seen in his work, Farouk's been one of the guys in the series I've grown to appreciate him as a wrestler and as a talent. And I have like far more respect for not that I had not that I disrespected him, but far more respect for him than I did beforehand from watching all this stuff. Uh, it, it is weird though, like who is and isn't in the match. I don't get it. I also there's a bit of a logic that goes away in this match when the nation playing the heels do tags. They don't take their opponent and bring them over to their corner. Like there's no consistency of preventing the face, usually Steve Blackman in this match, from making the tag. They just kind of like hit him in the middle of the ring, casually walk back to the corner, tag someone else in, casually walks in, picks up Steve Blackman. Like just a, a logic for the match that's missing there. Overall, like you guys were saying, it's a good match. It was a good opener. I enjoyed it. Yay, Farouk. Uh, tiny little thing here that I should have mentioned on the opening. You guys know what Unforgiven is the first of? It's the first time It's the first time the Scratch logo is used on pay-per-view. I did not pick up on that. Well, is that I, it's using it on the actual... I mean, we've seen it on the pay-per-views before, whether that's like the mic flags or and stuff like that. Okay, yes. For everything. For full blown, the logo, the graphic, the poster, a complete turnover to the scratch logo. It's a night of firsts on this pay per view. Oh, is there another one coming up? There's two Ooh. other first matches ever in W. Um, you, you did say something interesting, um, Kevin, and I kind of want to bring that up to both of you guys. Is as we've been going through the series, and this is what episode twenty one of the series of what twenty six, I think. Yeah. Twenty six, twenty seven. Yeah. Um, who has been the most surprising wrestler, do you guys think? I, I think early on we talked about how entertaining Jim Cornette was. Right. And how that kind of stuck out is how great he was at maximizing his minutes. But what other wrestler, um, I know, like, you know, Kevin, you just brought up Farouk and you're really appreciating his work. Is there anyone else that sticks out with who you're appreciating even more now? I always liked Mick Foley's work and just seeing the evolution of his the Mankind character uh, initially and his his matches with Undertaker. matches The one match with Shawn Michaels, we've already covered it. It was a really good match. Did well for both gentlemen. Um, then his evolution to the Dude Love character, the fun-loving Dude Love character, and now the Dude Love kind of like corporate stooge kind of deal. Uh, I'm very appreciative of McFoley. We've discussed it as well, like how much of an explosion The Rock has had as well over the past year of these in-your-house pay-per-views from his debut in 96 to now where we are almost almost a year and a half later or so. Who, who's on your mind in particular? I, I was thinking fully right away before you even answered just the creativity that I never thought of him as like a ring general calling things, but so clearly he is in some of these matches, right? The, the give and take the respect and all um, credit to Dustin Rhodes for this amazing evolution of gold dust. When you right. picture this as like from his debut until when we're done with in your house series, he's been around like two years, two and a half and so many changes in such a short time, more so than anyone else probably that we've watched. I've, I've got one more. That I, Triple H, uh, really yeah. from from the blue blood 
to then the 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 initial raunchy DX guy to now the front and center leader of DX and his physical transformation as well. Um, very much so. He's uh, had a significant run these these two two and a half years we've been doing the in your house pay per view reviews. Oh, three years now actually. You can see, I with Triple H, I can wrestle like this. I can wrestle this style. I can do right. a classic one. I can do a slow one. I can do this crazy thing. How can you not respect him? Yeah one one that's one that's sticking out to me is uh, this is gonna sound stupid is uh, HBK Shawn Michaels because I've always been a Bret Hart guy, so I hate Shawn Michaels. But to watch these matches again, it's it's just kind of fun how how. Your mind changes the older get. And then, of course, Diana Hartsmith. So uh, moving on, though, let's go with uh, Michael Cole interviewing Farouk, um, you know, after the match. And that's something I thought was interesting, too. They're doing these kind of post-match uh, quick interviews throughout the show. Um, you know, we talked earlier when they would do it before a match. And they would do it quick before they, you know, in gorilla before they walk out to the curtain. Now we're seeing them kind of post-match. Um, and I wonder if this has to do with, of course, we just saw Butterbean a couple um, uh, events ago um, with the rise of Tough Man in UFC doing the post-match fights um, in the ring and stuff. Well, there there was a mention on Pritchard podcast that around this time they were saying, why do we do this, things this way on Raw and a different way on pay-per-view? Why are all the interviews backstage on a pay-per-view but in the ring or on the ramp for Raw? That doesn't make sense. So let's bring it all in front of the audience. See, I would disagree with that, though. I think you want to make your pay-per-views feel different. It's more Absolutely. special. I, I see it, too. I'm just saying what was brought up on there. And, and this presentation, to me, it stood out because it's ringside. It's Michael Cole. I don't remember there being too many live ringside uh, interviews taking place. And if there were, it's usually it's a segment pertaining to just doing an interview, not literally post-match to get the competitor's reaction response to what happened. We see it a few more times throughout the night. So Yeah. Um, and then we see, of course, our first hard cut of the night. Um, and then we go right into Stone Cold and the Bellkeeper. Uh, this is this is going to be a uh, an ongoing thing. They're really teasing um, you know, the evil boss Vince. Uh, Mr. McMahon uh, really kind of screwing over Austin, uh, teasing that um, Montreal screw job here. Um, and you know what? You don't screw Stone Cold Steve Austin. He made that very clear during this little segment. Um, and then we go into match number two of the night, uh, which is going to be Triple H with China taking on Owen Hart. And China's going to be locked inside a shark cage. What do you guys think of this one? I Interesting in that, okay. Here's what's the next version of how we're going to try to keep China at bay at WrestleMania. And they show clips of her involvement, even though she was handcuffed to Sergeant Slaughter. She played a pivotal role in the outcome of that match, throwing powder in Slaughter's eyes, and then getting up on the ring apron and low blowing Owen Hart. That sent him up for the pedigree and for Triple H to be able to retain the European Championship at WrestleMania. So it's another new spin, and it was interesting the way she was able to work out of the cage and still get involved in the match, and even some of the goofy shenanigans of the 
uh, the cage cam, so to speak, showing her trying to escape and bend the bars and break through the or file through the bars at one point. Uh, it, it was just another great what methodology of storytelling to further the angle and then eventually come to a conclusion. Okay, so China being in the cage makes me think of stuff that many other women wrestlers have said over the years of, I was hired by WWE and I was put into a situation I wasn't trained for. And her whole time in the cage, I'm like, does she know what she's doing up there? Like, does she know what's going on? What's going to happen? How to get out? How to be safe? Um, was she supposed to drop the file or did she totally mess up that spot? Right. You know, it, 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 none of it seems okay overall. You give her credit, though. Like, well, I'm here. I'm, I'm in front of thousands of people on live right. TV. I, I got to just go with it and make the best of it and hope so. Her dangling out of the cage for as long as she did before they started lowering it and then they cut to and i really think it was just a the way that they didn't pan the camera back to blame the road dog for lowering the cage it just she was holding on and it was just it was long it was like a minute and a half it was crazy i give tons of credit for her strength for staying in there and i also wonder if road dog running out was planned or if they're like oh she's up way too high run out there figure this out you know um, we'll get her out of there. My question to you guys too is if you're sitting there live at the event, I mean, the road dog cut is so quick. I mean, you barely see him on the pay-per-view. Do you think if you're sitting there watching this live, you know, you're one of the 21,000, do you even know why the cage is being lowered? I don't think you have any no. idea. It was only for the at-home audience. Yeah. Unless there was a, um, Titantron, a big screen, whatever that showed up probably on a replay, honestly. I don't think the live crowd would have known. Right. Um, Side note to just go back for a moment. Uh, I just want to say Stone Cold and the Bellkeeper was my favorite fairy tale growing up. Make sure to edit that out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, crickets, man. What did you... uh, So, uh, Educator, what did you think of the match? The the match for what it was is more the entertainment of how's China going to become involved in the match than really the Triple H Owen Hart saga. And the finish to this particular match, you wouldn't think that there would be a new feud on the horizon with uh, X-Pac's involvement in, in the match, but I don't remember the two of them having a significant feud. Maybe they had a one-on-one on Raw. I don't even remember that because we see Owen Hart eventually joining a new faction in about a month or so from this due to his frustrations of the outcome and the direction of management, so to speak, and they're not, they're not holding DX accountable for their actions and so on. So the entrances for both competitors, Owen Hart is adamant China needs to get in the cage. She's stalling. Triple H is stalling China. Uh, or for China to not get in the cage. We eventually see Sergeant Slaughter come down ringside and order her into the cage. Did you guys see the pseudo shove that Slaughter had to China to push her into the cage? It was an awkward looking shove, so to speak. I honestly thought China was just going to turn around and just go nuts on whoever put their hands on them. 
as the cage is starting to slowly rise up, you hear a couple of fans at ringside yelling and screaming, and they're pointing at China's leg. You could see the gimmick she had, the file, in her right boot and, you know, down her pant leg in her right boot. It was very obvious pointing out uh, that we eventually see it later uh, being involved in the match. The cage cam showing China putting her back against the wall, kind of sitting up on one side and using her feet to try to push and bend the bars through uh, throughout the match itself. Just an interesting camera angle. They called it, I believe, the uh, cage cam, so to speak. In the match itself, we see the typical uh, back-and-forth match between Owen Hart and Triple H. Triple H does his running knee uh, after hitting the ropes onto Owen. We see a very nice suplex onto Owen Hart from Triple H. And then as an homage to Ric Flair, he goes into the corner and does a running knee drop into Owen's forehead. Very, very similar to what we know from Ric Flair. Triple H reverses an Irish whip into the corner and ends up sending Owen hard sternum first in the turnbuckle. Very similar to how Brett would sell that Irish whip into the turnbuckle sternum first. Uh, Triple H hits a face breaker onto his knee when Owen Hart ducked too early trying to set Triple H up for a back body drop. We see Triple H, and I don't remember him ever using this move throughout his career. Help me out, gentlemen. He was using essentially a dragon sleeper as a wear down hold on Owen Hart a few times throughout the match. And I don't ever remember that being like a common move that he would use. We see eventually... uh, Owen Hart making a comeback. He throws Triple H in the ropes. He hits that amazing-looking belly-to-belly suplex as Triple H is bouncing off the ropes. And as that move hits, we see China now with her shoulder beginning to lean into a set of the bars on the cage and begin to bend the bars, opening up the bars to give her the opportunity to eventually escape. Owen Hart ends up hitting an Enziguri kick, and the announcers referred to how that move was used on Shawn Michaels in the past. Owen Hart only gets a two count. Owen Hart then does his running reverse heel kick onto Triple H. Again goes for a pinfall attempt only for a two count. Owen hits a pile driver and then climbs to the top rope and hits one of the nicest looking top rope diving elbows that I have personally seen. I just saw a Twitter uh, a Twitter message or a Twitter post somewhere about who had the nicest diving elbow. It was like Macho Man Randy Savage, CM Punk, Tyree Sane, and there was one other on the list. And I think Tyson Kidd responded back to it. Hey, you know, why not me? I had a great one. But Owen Hart, absolutely. This was a thing of beauty, watching him dive off that top rope. And it was like more than halfway across the ring to hit Triple H. For that elbow. Educator, how do you see these Twitter posts? <laughs> Thank you. It was, uh, I was clicking on what a... Kind of, what kind of no, random was, account do you have? I was on a Facebook. It was a Facebook post from uh, a website saying that Natalia had posted a video of Tyson Kidd running the ropes and doing a handstand of the notes. And in that whole feed, there was also... A message where he responded back saying that he had a he had a, an awesome top rope elbow 
you know, I got to forgive you there because when Natalia says, check out this video I posted, I have to check it out. Great figure four. <laughs> oh, great figure four, huh? <laughs> so Owen Hart hits a pile driver in that top rope elbow that I was just talking about off the cage. And then Owen Hart gets Triple H in the sharpshooter for the submission. And in the background, we start to see China scaling her way down the cage. And that serves as a distraction to Owen Hart, who gets out of the ring on the apron. Triple H recovers from the sharpshooter and ends up knocking Owen out down onto the floor. And as they begin to brawl back and forth, Eventually, Owen is now got Triple H down, and he's looking up, and China is now dangling probably eight, ten feet in the air with her full body stretching down from the bottom of the cage. If she were to drop, it was more than her whole body length and a half that she would have fallen to the floor. So she was at least from her feet down to the floor eight, nine feet into the air and she's dangling there and then eventually trying to crawl back up into the cage. It was kind of a scary sight to be honest with you. And that having not gone back or not remembering this match from originally watching it, you would honestly think that someone would have easily have fallen. And the whole point of why Owen was underneath was to perhaps catch her if she had let go and had fallen. Eventually, we slowly see the cage lower, and there is a late edit that shows where apparently the road dog was the one responsible for causing the cage to lower back down to the floor. As the cage is lower, China is now on the floor, and we end up seeing uh, referees and officials coming to ringside to try to uh, hold or restrain China back, including the in-ring referee going out onto the floor. We have Sergeant Slaughter and two referees trying to hold China back from being involved while the match is continuing in the ring. Eventually, Owen Hart slingshots Triple H into the post and kicks him in the gut and hits a pedigree into the middle of the ring, but because the in-ring in, in referee is out on the floor, there is no, uh, there's no count. And as a result, because of the supposed distraction that China is serving as, X-Pac does a run-in from the crowd with a fire extinguisher in his hands and climbs in the ring and leaps across the ring and, you know, grinds that, the fire extinguisher into Owen Hart's back and Triple H rolls on top of Owen Hart and we get the pinfall one, two, three with Owen retaining his European championship. I, I like the match, but it just feels like all these shenanigans and everything and China in the cage and the distractions. All It's just part of the bigger story to move Owen off to the side and to keep building up the X as just being this force, you know, running through WWF. Um, it's, it's funny when, uh, Triple H and China are coming out to the ring, there's a sign in the ring that says Playboy needs China. And this has got to be what, like three years beforehand, probably right. Two or three years, which is, you know, interesting to see it there. And, and like I said, it's just a lot of the matches about China in the cage. And I just wonder how much was planned and how much was come, you know, figuring out what to do on the fly for it. Um, and it, it's a shame, but like you pointed out a lot of stuff that I just didn't really see that much 
because everything else was so distracting for what should have been a great match. Like we've discussed before how matches would have been watching it live without the commentary and the camera angles and all. This is a big one. I'm real curious how this match looked live. Uh, You're talking about the dragon sleeper. I agree. I don't think I ever saw Triple H do that before. It sounded like the announcers were even confused about what he was doing and why. Right. Right. And, you know, we, we've discussed before, like, how much is the MMA influence coming into stuff? Is that it? Were they like, hey, try a submission move? And then decided that doesn't really work for you. You know, just don't worry about it from now on. This is spring 98. So by then, Ultimo Dragon has been very well established in WCW. And that was his finisher for a while. All right. And, I mean, X-Pac, X-Pac coming in, Owens, you know frustrated with it and how could he not be and it doesn't take long for the next stage of owen to happen i just i don't get it i get building up dx i get thinking they're going to be heels and realizing their faces for the company but a lot of this just seems like they're going through stuff so fast and i think in speeding through a lot of it they're leaving money on the table and anything with owen from this time frame is a huge example of that i think that's a lot that has to do with the attitude error i mean look at how we were just talking about Owen and Shamrock at the, at the DX pay-per-view and Shamrock's in that throwaway uh, match with Farouk and Owen's here. I mean, yeah. one, two, and they could have been headlining. They could have absolutely been nothing against anyone else headlining at this point, but why not have a bunch of headliners? You've got real strong mid card, real strong. IC level European title. Hasn't been thrown in the trash yet. But, you know, you had a real good mid-card star roster here, but you don't have enough people up top, and they could have... We've mentioned two names here, and there's more that could have been bumped up real quick. Um, So, once again, we get a Michael Cole uh, interview with Owen, and Owen drops a BS. How dare he? I know. Those those hearts swearing on camera. I I did like that, though, for if they were pushing an athlete after uh, getting screwed after a loss. Um, you know, and enough's enough. It's time for a change is how it ends. So without a doubt, um, I wonder if we'll hear him say that again. You never know. Uh, we do have a hard cut and then we we go to Mr. NWA, Jim Cornette. We go to our NWA segment of the pay-per-view. Um, and this is the new midnight express taking on the rock and roll express. So what did you guys think? And by the way, the new Midnight Express, they're coming out to the uh, Rockers theme. Did you see the confusion of the fans? I was confused. No, Rock and Roll Express came out to the old Rockers theme. New Midnight had their own theme. Okay, yeah. So what's going on here? I mean, you're in North Carolina and you don't pony up for the Rock. Did Rock and Roll Express have their own theme? They had a few different themes throughout the years. But again, in WWF, they're going to use their own of whatever. I thought the one thing that was that was interesting was, of course, over the years, you hear how over the Rock and Roll Express is, especially in the South, in North Carolina, and no one cared. Well, Not over with the, the WWF audience. One of the things that I have in my notes is that, you know, for this being a 21,000-plus sold-out crowd, there were a lot of visible empty seats during this particular match. A lot of members of the crowd must have been up in going to merch, going to get a hot dog, going to the bathroom, doing something. They were not really in tune with this match. And unfortunately, the match itself didn't do any favors to the NWA legacy whatsoever. I I was not impressed with the match at all. 
Towards the beginning of the match, we see a, bo- a bunch of teasing and infighting between uh, Bombastic Bart. Bo- I'm sorry, Bombastic Bob and Bodacious Bart, where Bob Holly accidentally hits Bart a couple of times uh, on a missed maneuver, trying to hit one of the members of the Rock and Roll Express, but they duck or get out of the way, and accidentally Bob Holly ends up hitting Bart Gunn. Again, lots of empty seats are very visible on the screen. Cornette eventually gets involved and gets into the ring and teases having a fist fight with referee Tim White. We see Tim White untuck his shirt and show his gut to the crowd. Cornette's got his jacket off and he's ponying up like he's going to start a fight. But eventually Tim White backs Cornette into the corner and Cornette escapes into the onto the floor. When Cornette, re, you know, regains his bearings and is on the floor, Cornette ends up tripping Ricky, uh, Ricky Morton as Morton is running the ro- ropes and the ref is distracted. And eventually Cornette drags Morton out of the ring and one of the Midnight Express holds Ricky Morton and Jim Cornette hits one of the louder punches onto, for- onto uh Ricky Morton's head on the outside of the ring, and it got very little crowd heat, very little crowd response. Eventually, there's back and forth between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express. Bob Holly is in the ring, ends up body slamming Ricky Morton, climbs the top rope to do an homage to Bobby Eaton and the leg drop off the top, the Alabama Jam, but he ends up missing as Ricky Morton rolls out of the way. Rock and Roll Express... Uh, Ricky Morton eventually tags in, uh, and the Rock and Roll Express end up doing a drug double drop kick onto Bodacious Bart. And again, very little to no crowd response whatsoever. With Robert Gibson going for the pin, we see Cornette rolling into the ring, standing up and attempting to do a running elbow drop to break up the pin. Robert Gibson rolls out of the way, and Cornette ends up landing onto Bart Gunn as. Robert Gibson attempts to do a roll-up pin on Bart Gunn. Ricky Morton has the referee distracted, so that gives Bob Holly the ability to run the ropes and hit a running bulldog onto Robert Gibson, allowing Bart Gunn to do a pinfall, one, two, three, and the new Midnight Express retain the NWA Tag Team Championship. You have Bart Gunn and Bob Holly, and I'm not even trying to say their nicknames and get it all confused who are younger, bigger, more like full-time WWF performers that you think have the the push behind them. And they get no offense and look like fools in the entire match. And then just get like a cheap victory at that. Which I get, hey, you know, the old timers are outsmarting you and all, but there's a difference between like Legion of Doom flat out outpowering New Age Outlaws we're just flat out bigger and stronger and have been doing this a while and the outlaws cheat to win. I get it. But the size comparison with new midnight express and rock and roll express, they should have looked more dominant and gotten more in for this match. Like it just seems how, how could they even possibly be taken seriously? Well, you know what it is, Kevin. I think what you're forgetting is the rock and roll express has always been known for the amount of offense they generate. That's what makes them great is the fact that they're terrible at taking a beatdown. Ricky Morton would take a beating and that was the joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were I thought you were actually like arguing this for a moment. Um 
And I mean, even like the style of match it is, because you got all the stuff with Cornette and Tim White. Like one of the things for WWF is go national is previous for wrestling. It's kind of like going to rent a movie. Do I go to the comedy section, the horror section, whatever? Okay, do I want Southern wrestling? Do I want this kind of wrestling? Do I want comedy wrestling? Do I want deathmatch wrestling? But WWF was like, hey, come see us, and we have a little bit of everything under the card. So everyone goes home happy. Everyone sees the type of wrestling they want. And this match is a certain type and style of wrestling that Cornette loves. And the fact, like you were saying, of all of the empty crowds, it did jack for this crowd. No one cared. But then I start wondering, is that the Attitude Era coming in? Because your children of the 80s that grew up watching Hogan and your teenagers and 20-somethings at this time who just want the attitude of Austin and DX do not care about Cornette's version of wrestling. Right. And they were never going, they never had and they were never going to. So the audience for that wrestling is not who's coming in now and buying all the shirts and buying all the tickets. It's just such a, uh, you, you know, I think we talked about it. I think Educator, you said that you thought that the idea of the NWA kind of evasion storyline could have worked, but once again, they don't know what they're doing. It doesn't. It doesn't fit the Attitude Era, really. No, it doesn't at all. I think they would have better luck bringing in Billy Corgan's NWA than the NWA that they brought in during Attitude Era. Right. You, you know what's funny too is the is the way that Cornette feels like how like the way wrestling should be done right he he's anti the progression of wrestling and how it is today but here he is in this match getting into it with the ref in a weird comedy spot which would you think you would would be so anti what how is that different than what people are doing now with like ref aubrey and stuff like that but that was the spot he would do all the time or or you know shows he liked like that was a common spot that he was trying to, you know, bring back up to a national thing. So because it already existed and he liked it, it's okay. All right. Well, let's go to uh, Doc Hendricks talking with the artist formerly known as Gold Dust and Kevin's favorite woman, Luna. Are you are you ready for the next match, Kevin? I I, I gotta admit, I waited till late at night to watch it. Everyone else was asleep. You didn't show this match to Declan for his seventh birthday, did you? No, no, no. That's like a 17th, maybe. Uh, so why don't we go into our first ever WWF evening gown match? Uh, we have Luna Vashon with the artist formerly known as Goldust uh, taking on Sable. Uh, what did you guys think of this? Do we want to go in depth or? Early, I just have, uh, what is there to say? I just, I, I remember growing up as a kid. What a glorious day, days those were. And you were in, there was two camps. There was Team Sonny and Team Sable, right? I was right. always I was always Team Sonny. My brother, Team Sable. Looking back on this, I did not find, like, Sable attractive. Like, with how big her breast implants were, to me, was not, it, it, it like you said, it looked awkward. Um, but I know... Was that a big thing of the time? And let me go to my late 90s expert, Kevin Hellions, here, because I know you were a Stern fan. Um, and we talked about Stern's influence on the show. Was that a um, a product of like the Howard Stern era of uh, media? 
I mean, I don't even think it was a Howard Stern thing. I think it was just that's the expectation of beauty at the time. The the bigger, faker breast. Um, Sable, you had plenty of women on Howard Stern show. You had adult movie stars. Honestly, let's just let's say Baywatch and throw that in there, too. When the number one show in the world involves women in bathing suits running, everyone else is going to want that look, too. The blonde hair, the the chest, the you know, the body, it, it makes sense. And and like your comparison for Sunny and Sable, jokes about Sunny's who she currently is aside, in WWF, Sunny seems like the girl next door, and Sable seems like someone's second or third wife. It, and it's like you see this match and you're just thinking, okay, you threw this out there to get the pop and get the excitement and all the pictures and you know sell more magazines and this on VHS and DVD and all, but you don't care about anything actually in it. One, like they come out and they did, you know, these matches before Evening Gown, Braun Panty was up, whatever, but they come out in these dresses and you're like, did you just get that like in a garbage can in front of the Salvation Army? Like, they look hideous coming out, too. Anyways. Absolutely look hideous. Um, there's a great sign in the crowd as they come out saying, Skin to win, T-O-O for two. So, um, you know, that's the crowd we're appealing to here anyways for it. Jerry Lawler is just beyond perverse for the whole match. <laughs> but, I mean, like, Mark Merrill comes down, does his part. Uh, the, the Sable Bomb, like... Clearly, Sable can't wrestle. Clearly. She also obviously has had more surgery done, so she's probably in pain. Why would you put her out in this? I mean, we know why. But why? Trust her faith to one of them, or there's a second pair of underwear under the ring. But you got to give credit for Luna being a trooper and willing to do whatever was under the ring there, and then trust that Goldust is going to keep her clothed i guess <laughs> as she makes her way to the back i was wondering as he comes out in jeans and a t-shirt why he's bothering with the robe and i'm like oh that's why that's why they needed the robe for her. i mean really it's it's not a match or anything it's just she's over Un- not unfortunately but like shockingly sable is ridiculously over at this time right up there with stone cold and dx i just i i personally just think sable looks better with like the leather jumpsuit yeah uh, than than how she looked. I mean, she looked. It just looked so fake. She did. She can't act. She's got a bad attitude. It, a lot of it only seemed to get worse. The grind. It was one of the dumbest, worst, most cringy things on WWF TV, and they had to do it for what a good year or two. Yeah, I mean, it didn't even get Eric Nice over. So. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So why don't we go to the only appropriate hard cut of the night? Um, and then we get Vince uh, followed by Patterson and Briscoe because something very catastrophic is going to happen tonight, guys. And they've been talking about something catastrophic happening the entire pay-per-view. Um, I forgot how much I loved Vince's goons and the Stooges because <laughs> Patterson and Briscoe are fantastic. Um, what did you guys think of uh, this little quick segment here? Vince McMahon is not going to be held accountable if Stone Cold screws Stone Cold. So he's kind of uh, tug-in-cheek, throwing a barb over to WCW and Bret Hart's way. Uh, interesting, interesting. Continuing to follow up this big catastrophic thing that's going to happen. Unfortunately, will or will it not come to fruition? We'll never know. 
I was shocked seeing the Vince of 1998 come out and how much he reminds me of the Shane McMahon of 2020. And I didn't look up ages, but they got to be close to the same age, whatever Vince was in 98 and Shane is now. Like it, the attitude, the walk, the style, everything. Like he is his father's son. Yeah, and then we followed that up with Kevin Kelly interviewing Sable for the Superstar line. And uh, they did not uh, black out the number, guys. They did have a little mention that the lines are no longer active. but um, So I, I wrote down the number. And I was thinking we could call it and see where it takes us to. I'm going to lose it if it's some adult number now. Well, let's <laughs> find out here, guys. So should we say what the number is? Go for it. So it's one nine hundred, and you guys can do this at home too. One nine hundred seven three seven four WWF. So one nine hundred seven three seven four WWF. See if I can get this on. Let's get this on speaker. Here. I wonder if that is my phone. Let's try that one more time. This could be very anticlimactic. <laughs> right, try it one more time. Yeah, no. Sorry, guys. That wasn't as fun of a segment as I thought it was going to be. Well, I'm sure that woman sounded better than whatever Sable was saying on the Superstar line. <sighs> Yeah, maybe. Who knows? And as Kevin Kelly said, and the internet as well. Ooh, they have the internet now. So, um, Mass Library. Yes. After that, Road Dog comes out. Yes, he does. What did you think of him making fun of Dean Smith? I did had that, no idea. Did that piss I, you off? I had no idea who Dean Smith is, was, will be. I, I still don't know. I assume he has something to do with Greensboro in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Dean Smith was a basketball coach for the North Carolina basketball oh, star heels. Um, but why don't we go right into match number five? And like I said earlier, um, I think I texted you guys during this that just said, LOD Sunny, oh my heart. <laughs> because she looked so much better than the than the evening gown match here. We do have the New Age Outlaws taking down LOD 2000. And what was an odd, odd event, this this whole match. Um, you know, earlier you brought up the fact that they were pushing the Scratch logo and that it was the first time that was on the pay-per-view, um, except for the graphic for the tag team titles, which had the old WWF logo. Oh, did it? Yeah, I have that written down. So, um, And what an odd ending to this match. Yeah, I don't like these endings. I get it from a story point. I don't like them. It's just the way to beat the road. Warriors, not beat the Road Warriors kind of deal. It, and it's not a clean finish, so to speak. And it was frustrating in that it, if there was at least some little flinch from the Road Dog to say that, yeah, he moved the shoulder, but there wasn't whatsoever. And the way Hawk was positioned, his, or Animal was positioned, I should say, his shoulders were not down for all three seconds. They, they were down for the two and the three, but for the initial roll, yeah. It was too bad. There's just not much to the match overall, too. You know? I don't understand. Like you're saying, Sunny comes out. It's not like she's 
fully clothed by any means. She's in her crazy LOD 2000 outfit. It reminded me of Star Wars Princess Leia. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. I noticed with the LOD entrance just from the previous month at WrestleMania, and maybe it was just a WrestleMania gimmick they were wearing, but like they didn't have their like big motorcycle helmets completely covering their head as they did at the WrestleMania Battle Royal entrance. The couple of notes that I have regarding this match, Billy Gunn here was like ridiculously massive. He looked more impressive than either of the Road Warriors. I, I just I couldn't imagine him being a member of the Legion of Doom with the long gear and, and the spiked shoulder pads. This dude was just absolutely huge. And I guess with the rebranding of the Legion of Doom now being called LOD 2000, their Doomsday device apparently got renamed to the Devastation device. Did you guys pick that, that up from JR? Yeah, I didn't know if I was hearing it wrong or a mistake or what. Yeah, I was wondering. So uh, there's back and forth action between uh, Animal and the tags in and out throughout the match. Billy Gunn hits his rocker dropper. It's referred to as a rocker dropper. Later on, we called it the Famouser onto Animal for a two count. Billy Gunn attempts a pile driver onto Animal, but Animal reverses it for a back body drop. Both men end up making a tag. Hawk comes in and cleans house. Hawk climbs to the top rope and does a top rope splash onto the road dog. But Billy Gunn hit, hits Hawk to uh, stop the ref count. Billy Gunn holds onto Hawk's arms. And road dog tries to hit Hawk, but ends up Hawk at ducking. And Billy ends up getting hit. Hawk hits a belly-to-back suplex onto the road dog for the finish. And we end up seeing the referee count a three and the crowd erupts like crazy thinking that the Legion of Doom LOD 2000 have won the titles. They've actually got the belts in the ring. Sonny's going nuts. And then we just hear the awkward, you know, the winners of the match and still WWF tag team champions, the new age outlaws. And even the camera cuts on the replays showing the shoulders being down like Road Dog does not even flinch at all to sell lifting a shoulder or not having his shoulders off the mat. So I just it's just a terrible ending in that yeah, it's a tie, so to speak. And the you know, they both, you know, the match was a draw, but as opposed to retaining the tag titles. And Hawk's shoulder, again, was not fully down after the first, after the one count, but it was for the second and the third. Terrible angle. We end up seeing afterwards Legion of Doom very frustrated with referee Jack Doan, end up beating on him and then give him the Doomsday device. And then we see Sergeant Slaughter come to the ring with other officials to try to tend to the referee. We're, we we were rebranding the Legion of Doom, and we're already starting to slowly kill them after a month of their return. I don't like that ending. I've seen it done well a couple of times, but I overall don't like it. I think it's cheap. I think that too many times, like you were saying, someone screws it up, doesn't get a shoulder up or whatever. It's you know the angles are bad, whatever. It's it's one of the it's a pet peeve on my you know wrestling watching. Um, 
Sonny looks much better than Sable, who's being pushed, who's getting the crowd cheers and everything, looks incredible, and still no money behind her like there is for Sable. I don't get it. And, uh, like, to be Jerry Lawler for a moment, if they had the same camera angles on Sonny that they had on Sable, she would have been just as popular. Uh, I noticed that Billy Gunn loves to swear when he's selling. I think this is one of the, the, the second or third time. And he didn't get bleeped on this one. And then a question about pairing Sonny with LOD. We all, and listeners as well, end up knowing someone in our lives that would have a substance abuse program. And when that person finds love, if it's someone that doesn't have a problem, you feel happy for them, that they're moving forward, they've gotten their life back on track. But if that person that you know with a substance abuse program starts dating someone who also has one, you know something bad's going to happen. Hawk and Sonny in the same program and having to spend time together seems like a recipe for disaster. I, I did find it funny that uh, this was the first time we saw Sonny with LOD 2000 on the um, In Your House series. And, uh, you know, for a second there, it looked like the tag team titles were coming with her. So Exactly. <laughs> Told you. Told you. Did, when she, the short time she was in ECW, um, did the Triple Threat have the tag titles as well? It was the weird combination of Chris Candido and unofficial member Lance Storm. Okay. This is when Brian Lee was out and they hadn't recruited. Brian Lee was gone and they hadn't recruited Bam Bam Bigelow to come in yet. Okay. Question to to you guys, because I know, uh, Educator, you brought up Billy Gunn and Billy Gunn's size, and he's deceptively huge. I mean, the dude is a monster. Right. I don't remember him being so big during the jean-wearing smoking guns, and then when he, as soon as he became a part of the New Age Outlaws, it was like mega gains. He's getting huge. He's getting bigger. And then when he went from the long tights to now like the biker short kind of tights, it's just it's crazy just how big he is. How different would his career be if he was 20 years later? Like if he was that Billy Gunn now with his with his size and look, he would be a world champ in WWE. He'd be in the Drew McIntyre spot without a doubt. You think? I w- I would. Can he cut a promo? Absolutely. Because I think that was one of the things that held him better back. Better than McIntyre can. McIntyre can definitely cut a promo, but I thought one of the things for Billy Gunn was he was always better when paired with someone else that can do most of the talking for him. I think what hurt Billy Gunn was that. He was brought in as a tag wrestler and then just kept continuing being a tag wrestler and being a faction. And then that he just had that stigma on him and he couldn't ever escape. It would just, it's, it would be just like one of LOD trying to do a singles run. It you just, you're not, you, you don't, you don't buy into it because you're so used to seeing him as a tag. I'm all, I'm also curious how Billy Gunn would be with a scripted promo. Because, sure, like you said, oh, maybe he's not a great talker, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have delivery if it's written for him. Right. Maybe. I'm just, I'm curious because it's funny when I saw him in that AEW Battle Royal and he is the same size, if not bigger, than Luchasaurus. Right. 
and Luchasaurus is like a monster in AEW, and and uh, it, it's it's just kind of it's jarring. It's almost like oh wow, I didn't realize you know how big uh, uh, Billy Gunn is. So I mean, and that's part of just who is in wrestling now too. Like Matt Cardona is a monster in AEW. Now he looks massive there. But you know, uh, twenty years earlier, he would be a jobber. You know, right? No. Yeah. Just kind of, just kind of how the the concept in the the bodies have changed over the years. It'd be Jim Powers. Um, yeah. So as they uh, stretcher out Jack Doan, why don't we take a short little commercial break? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. What will the house show crew do once the In Your House series is over? No one really knows. Stay tuned, because this October, do we have a surprise for you. A surprise for you. Join the Educator of Excellence as he takes over hosting duties for the rest of the year. What? And brings his love of WWE reality programming to the Retro Network. A fake wrestling show, but it's real. That's right, it's time for... Huh? Total Fellas. Okay. The educator takes his love of the Total Bellas reality TV show and explains each and every episode to the masked library and to Sweet Maddie Treats. What a bunch of idiots. What will happen as Nikki and Brie Bella have their adventures both inside and outside of the ring? Madcap adventures. Will Brie and Daniel Bryan get married? <gasps> Who knows? What if someone gets pregnant? Probably. And will John Cena ever propose to Nikki? You can see him. Stay tuned and don't forget to send in your questions for the educator. Send in those cues. It's total fellas. Yep. This fall on the Retro Network. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. Power slams and the educator. This fall on the Retro Network. And we're back, guys. Uh, you know why I love in your house pay-per-views is because they're the exclusive home of Double J Jeff Jarrett musical performances. Um, I 
don't remember this. Did any of you guys remember this? I, I don't remember it at all. And I, I completely was blown away at this whole whole thing and Sawyer Brown being involved and all that stuff. Not that I'm a country music fan at all, but I've, I've at least heard who, Sawyer Brown, who, who they are and so on. And crazy, crazy segment. I don't remember it, and I'm fairly sure I watched this because I wanted to see the Inferno match. If not, like, right away ordering it, then certainly when it was available, you know, VHS, DVD, whatever. I don't know if Sawyer Brown's the name of a guy in the band or the whole band or what. I don't know any song. I heard a song on this. I still don't know any song from them. But considering the location you're at and popularity, like, I get doing it. also gave a lot of time to set up for Inferno Match. Like, I get it. So, who was Jeff Jarrett actually singing this version? Not a chance. There's, there's no way. Who who was it? Do we know? Probably know. Sawyer Brown doing a dub of themselves. Because it, it is a Sawyer Brown song. Some girls do. It was the name of the song. I just I don't remember any of this. It's all a blur. I mean, Tennessee Lee is part of it. Steve Blackman's part of it. There is a We Want Flair um, uh, chant. This is where the We Want Flair chant comes in. It's like a dream sequence. I mean, maybe one of the three guitarists was actually singing Jarrett's lines because for having three guitars, you wouldn't know. There's no, it was such, I'll say it was such a weak sounding song too. Yeah. It's not an arena rock song, but uh, so, um, you know, uh, I do have a question for you guys is what Jeff Jarrett performance was better. Was this one better than uh, with my baby tonight? Oh, I mean, with my baby tonight is just so much more iconic yeah. to the whole Jeff Jarrett lore. I again completely forgot about this and the Sawyer Brown song and all that. So, I would say just in terms of status, it's got to be the with my baby tonight. I mean, he sang that at the his Hall of Fame speech. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a well done performance for what it is and what it had to do. And I guess Sawyer Brown's like a legit band with fans and money and stuff. But with my baby tonight is so many years later still memorable in in wrestling history. Funny you say that because some girls do was a number one Canadian song in the U.S. or a number one country oh, song in the right, U.S. on Billboard. Right next, right next to Farmer's Daughter, probably. <laughs> and uh, it was uh it was released in March '92, so it's an no, old song at this point, six years old. Well, maybe they should come up with another hit. I wonder, are they from? No, they're from Florida. So I don't get why they were the band. I don't know what's going on with them. So uh, why don't we move on? Uh, what do you guys think of Blackman here? Just getting uh, destroyed. Blackman and his uh, Nike tennis sneakers getting destroyed. Yeah. The chair, the, the guitar shot from Tennessee Lee was great. I love the pop. Yeah, so then we move on. So there was the Inferno match video happens. And I remember, you know, it's funny you bring that up, Kevin, that you you watch the Inferno match either then or when it was on VHS or DVD or, or whatever. Because I remember um, as a kid being so excited for the Inferno match because the video makes it seem like the ropes are going to be on fire. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be awesome. I mean, these ropes are going to be on fire. Someone's going to die. Like, I was so pumped. And then I remember watching the actual Inferno match when I was a kid and hating it because I was like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, but watching it, I really liked the Inferno match. I don't know why. I, 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 I think I was more impressed with 
Kane and Taker and how they worked it. Um, and the production of the flames going up and stuff like that. it did look so cool. Yeah. During the bumps, the big bumps of the match with the flames flaring up in the background. It was really cool. It was a spectacular sight. Yeah. So why don't we get right into it? Of course, Kane with Paul bearer taking on the undertaker, um, in the Inferno match. So the match starts off undertaker and Kane in the middle of the ring. There's a little bit of back and forth slugging between undertaker and Kane. Eventually, Undertaker sets up Kane for old school, climbing the ropes, walking the ropes to do the forearm smash. As Undertaker leaps off the ropes, we see the first major flare-up, which was a really cool sight, and it got a good pop from the crowd. Essentially, throughout the match, anytime we end up seeing a pretty big bump, there's a cool flare-up perfectly timed with that bump. Eventually, we end up seeing the guy that is responsible for the flare-ups and at the controls, ringside in the match. So it just lent to the aura of the match and the mystique and really as to how in the world they were going to do some kind of someone's catching on fire in order to finish the match itself. Eventually, we see Paul Bearer sending a chair into the ring and Kane uses it to crack the Undertaker over the top uh, into the skull with JR calling it is Concussion City. So when you've got the commentator kind of joking about a chair shot, a head shot, and concussions, in 1998, it's crazy to think of what we've now gone through with watching the business evolve to now eliminating these chair shots now knowing everything with concussion trauma and and so on, CTE and everything like that. But after this chair shot to the head, within 20, 30 seconds, Undertaker is already doing a comeback, kicking Kane in the gut to fight back. Undertaker makes a comeback with a Russian leg sweep, and eventually he drops the big leg off the rope, a la Hulk Hogan, only for Kane to essentially sit up moments thereafter. Kane attempts to block a chokeslam attempt from The Undertaker by him actually reversing it and doing a chokeslam onto Undertaker himself. We get a really cool flare-up timed with the slam on the canvas. Kane attempts a tombstone pile driver onto The Undertaker, only for Undertaker to slide out the back, slide down his back. Uh, Taker pushes Kane into the turnbuckle and on the rebound grabs Kane for a choke slam and ends up choke slamming Kane in the ring for another flare up. Kane ends up sitting up right almost immediately thereafter. Taker tries to send Kane into the ropes, but Kane reverses it and they essentially were walking or running towards each other. They give themselves each the big boot and both are knocked down in the middle of the ring. Essentially, uh, or eventually Kane and Taker get up. Taker runs the ropes to do a big running flying clothesline, but instead turns it more into a forward roll or a forward flip. Kane attempts to climb the top rope only for Undertaker to run against the ropes and bump the ropes to cause Kane to fall down and essentially catch himself growing on the top turnbuckle. And Undertaker superplexes Kane from the second turnbuckle into the ring for a huge crowd pop as well as a huge flare up taker threw Kane over the top rope. And it was, it was crazy. Not only threw him over the top, but threw him over hard enough for Kane to clear the fire and to eventually land on the floor. 
And then we eventually see Kane teasing that he is going to leave the match because as Undertaker tries to follow out after him, there are multiple flare-ups that prevent Undertaker from being able to exit the ring from any side. So Kane begins to tease that he's going to leave and starts walking back to the dressing room. And then we see a uh, street-clothed the Vader attack Kane and they start to brawl back towards ringside as Vader and Kane are brawling back towards the ring. We see in the background, the undertaker hitting the ropes and he ends up doing this spectacular dive over the top rope. And just as undertaker's feet clear the fire, we see a monstrous flare up in the background. It was really, really cool as taker hits both guys uh, on the floor. Eventually, as uh, Undertaker recovers from this dive onto both men on the floor, we see Undertaker grabbing a chair and hitting Kane in the head. And then he ends up knocking Kane back down onto the floor to the point where Kane's right arm and shoulder are now under the ring itself. So they are... There's technicians, I'm assuming, under the ring that is prepping Kane's, you know, gloved arm, so to speak, or at least his the way his gear was uh, set up. He had one completely bare exposed arm and then one arm. His costume was completely covered and he had a black glove on that right arm. Taker stalks and chases Paul Bearer away as Paul Bearer swings a chair onto the Undertaker and ends up. Undertaker essentially chases Paul Bearer towards the Sawyer Brown stage and picks up one of the bass drums and slams it over Paul Bearer's head. So it's now sitting on top of Paul Bearer's head like a garbage can, so to speak. And eventually, as it rolls off his head, we see a bead of blood beginning to go down Paul Bearer's head. Undertaker starts to work his way back to ringside and where Kane has had ample time to recover. And we see Kane stand up and he's got a chair in his, he's got the chair that he was hit with in his possession. But if you were to look very, very closely, you could see the obvious, it almost looks like he wrapped his entire arm in saran wrap, his right arm in saran wrap. He does a gut shot to the Undertaker that knocks him back with the chair, but Undertaker responds and hits him with a big boot, which causes Kane to drop the chair and flail his arm onto the actual fire apparatus and after leaving it there for an awkward three or four seconds to ignite Kane's arm is now fully engulfed and he's waving it back and forth as he is staggering or almost running back to the locker room uh, and the match is declared over Undertaker wins the first ever Inferno match by setting Kane's right arm on fire so, you know that feeling when you think of something cringeworthy that you did in high school and you feel all embarrassed all over again, even though it's been many years and chances are no one but you remembers? Or you see people up on a, on a height, like uh, someone's got a YouTube video of them looking over the edge of a skyscraper or something like that. You feel that, that spookiness for a moment and the vertigo. Knowing Undertaker and Kane are perfectly fine decades later i felt scared the entire time watching this match 
Like there were so many moves or like there's one where Undertaker seemed like he rolled too far and was about to roll right into the into the fire setup. When Kane is climbing the turnbuckles, I'm like, his feet must be burning inside the boots right now. Like it must have all that heat just trapped in there. I I I love my wife. I love my kid. You know, I got great friends like you guys all. I have family. I don't know that I trust someone as much as Undertaker and Kane had to trust the people setting up all this fire equipment. Like, the whole thing just shocks me and frightens me. I can't believe everyone got out of this safely. I can't believe everyone's okay. I Even the fans. Like, I think the ringside to front row space now is much larger, so you can do more stuff on the outside. The fans must have been sweating from all the heat, from the flames and everything that were front row. The announcers. Like, I just, I can't believe this match even happened and then it, it was pulled off. I remember watching it, being very upset about how obvious Kane's fire padding was, whatever you call it. Like, when I was younger, it looked huge. It looked like a giant, like, sweater of an arm put on him. It didn't seem that bad now. I don't know if it's just because I was expecting it. I was like, well, yeah, of course that's how the gimmick works, and you'd have to do it. Makes sense. And then I don't know if you saw, as he's going back, like, he had a little turn. And for a moment, it looked like his left arm didn't touch the flames, but touched the metal of, of the setup, which had to be, you know, burning hot as well. I, I just, I'm in awe that both of them did that. If I'm grilling, I have to time putting the meat on the grill so I don't get, you know, a little singed or anything. Like, fire's just not for me at all. So watching this, I, I was excited. I had anxiety the whole time. This is a great spectacle of a match. Not putting it top five or anything like that. But for the sports entertainment over the top aspect, this was a joy to watch. You see, I would put it top five. Really? Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. I know you guys won't. There's not enough support for it. <laughs> but I'm just saying from everything you said, Kevin, from, from watching it and being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, like. It was so much better than what I remember as a kid, and I, I I think it was just because I once I didn't see those you know those the ropes on fire I was I I was out of it, but uh, yeah I would put this at top five personally. Well, I mean, there's a difference between I walk into a movie, an event, show, whatever, expecting one thing, and I didn't get that one thing, and I'm disappointed, and then revisiting it later on. Okay, I know what it is. I know what it isn't. Let me just enjoy it for what it is and not for what's missing that I thought should have been there. You know what I think you can compare it to in popular pop culture, media, whatever, is the movie Unbreakable. Okay. Because you walked into the movie Unbreakable. No one knew it was about superheroes, right? True. No one knew what they were getting into. So I'm sure a lot of people saw it and was like, when initial reaction was probably like oh that was not what i thought and um it wasn't as good as i thought it was going to be right but now that you've had time to kind of look back on it and appreciate what they did now think of unbreakable people love it as a kind of a breakdown of the way of comics uh superheroes and villains are true true i mean Un unbreakable came out i didn't see it i didn't see it till many years later on dvd because even I didn't know it was going to be a superhero movie. I think a better example would be 
all of a sudden every, people don't hate the prequels for Star Wars anymore because they've accepted them for what they are and can right. them from what they are, not what they thought it was going to be with t- near 20 years in between movies. And I know, too, we've discussed uh, Undertaker, Alexa Bliss. I think with this match, Undertaker passes the career of Alexa Bliss. So. Oh, could Alexa <laughs> Bliss do an Inferno match? Well, I don't know where her and The Fiend are going. So No, that's true. That's true. Good point. <laughs> we, we could see that there. So why don't we uh, why don't we move on? Oh, by the way, the last thing I love is just Paul Bearer with the uh, the bass drum around his head. Right, it's great. It's I want a bass drum Paul Bearer action figure. Let's go. <laughs> and just that single trickle of blood too. Like it's, right. it looks so great. Yeah. Um, so following that up, we get the Stone Cold Steve Austin, Vince McMahon, Dude Love storyline video, um, and then we get Dude Love versus Stone Cold Steve Austin with a ton. A ton of screw job finish teases here. Uh, what you guys think of this match? What the, it's the first feud of Austin since winning the title, but there's a bigger picture. It's getting the McMahon character over and causing him to become the biggest heel, uh, you know, of the company itself. The the involvement of McMahon who is outright not trying to directly cause Austin to lose, but in desperation trying to make sure that the timekeeper's paying attention and is ready to call as soon as the ref calls it, or trying to revive the referee that got knocked down during a bump, uh, not getting physically involved and putting his hands on Austin, but trying to pick up Mick Foley to uh, finish the match after Foley was knocked down. Where he's tiptoeing his level of physicality and involvement more and more. And this was just trying to see what what buttons were going to be pushed to see how the crowd would react and respond to it. I don't want to say the match was phoned in. Because that's discredit to Austin and to Foley. But I'll say it was, I punched into work, I did my job, I went home. There's nothing extra added to it. Because there didn't have to be. All we gotta do is buy like 15-20 minutes of time until this thing happens. That's all we're here to do. Until the, the time. Exactly. Yeah. That's absolutely all we're here to do. And I mean, it's like Austin's had great matches, Foley has, they've had a lot of good stuff together. But all that this is, is just waiting for the ending. And that's it. All right, so I guess that does it for the main event. I mean, like, Austin hitting, looking like he's supposed to hit fully with a chair and hitting Vince instead and everything just coming to a halt. Great ending. Great storyline. This match is nothing, though. For the furthering of Austin versus McMahon, good ending. That's it, though. Mr. Hellions, who is a better referee, Stone Cold in this match or Bailey during a Sasha Banks match? It's gotta be Bailey. Bailey. Who's wearing jeans? Austin wore jean shorts. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you guys want to break down the match? The awkwardness of the finish uh, with Austin counting his own three count and then the the music playing as if it was the legit ending of the match and Austin celebrating. I just I thought it was awkward to say the least. Why? Another official couldn't come down to ringside. That doesn't make sense to me. We've seen so many officials coming to the ring and helping and being involved and so on. There just wasn't another available official to become to come down there. It, it was just weird. 
So well, we get. Maybe, oh, go maybe ahead. You're supposed to be Jack Doan. Oh. <laughs> so notice, if you guys notice, Hebner, Earl Hebner, still not recovered, I guess, from whatever illness or injury he had that kept him out of the WrestleMania main event with Shawn Michaels and Steve Austin. So we see no he- Earl Hebner at all during this whatsoever. So the match starts with Dude Love attacking Austin as Austin is trying to hand the ref the belt over to the referee. Austin makes a comeback, hits a Luthez press and a running elbow off the ropes for a huge crowd pop. There's lots of offense by Austin that lead to eventually Foley being knocked out of the ring and Austin giving chase uh, to uh, following after Dude Love. We get a weird letterbox camera shot at it. We see it throughout the night, but it just to me, I notice it stood out a lot more as Austin throws Foley off the sound, the sound stage from the Sawyer Brown sound stage to the concrete, and that was a thick or a sick, I should say, thud of Foley's hips hitting the bare exposed concrete as he was thrown off. We eventually see both men get followed back into the ring, and Austin lays. Foley's body over the second rope and runs the opposite side to drop a leg over uh, Foley's head and torso over the ropes, but Foley ends up rolling out of the way, causing Austin to get tangled up onto the ropes. We see Foley hit a running bulldog and dropping an elbow onto Austin. Austin attempts a recovery comeback by hitting a, a a quick clothesline onto Foley. But eventually Foley takes back over with a knee to a gut. And then we see a wear down rest hold chin lock on the mat. I don't know if you guys caught this, but during this rest hold chin lock, we see Austin spit a huge loogie and it crushes the referee Mike Kyoto in the face. And you see Kyoto wipe his face because he got accidentally hit with that loogie. I got a question for you guys because I noticed that too. It was during the rest hold right before Vince comes out. Before before Austin spits the loogie, uh, Chioda's like wiping Austin's head before he spits the loogie. I'm wondering if like that was like a rib. Like rewatch it. It's 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 kind of an interesting little tidbit that you know stuff like we pick up on because we're always looking for interesting things as we're watching the event but um i wasn't sure exactly what was going on there but i i I thought it was something between the three of them in the ring yeah i definitely something i'm gonna go back and take a look at so as mentioned right after that loogie to kyota's face uh we see mcmahon patterson and briscoe come down to ringside mcmahon with a chair ends up sitting uh, right with his back to the hard camera to be having his own front row seat to watch the rest of the match. Eventually, Austin regains control and begins to work Foley's knees, smashing them into the ring post as McMahon kind of looks on with disgust. Once Austin is getting uh, hurt on the floor, we see McMahon get up and begin taunting Austin about getting back in the ring. You don't want to save the match on a count out. And eventually, Austin chases McMahon uh, down the aisleway, and Foley runs up behind him and hits him with a clothesline from behind. Foley sends Austin back into the ring and into the ropes and captures him in an awkward abdominal stretch maneuver. I don't know if you guys saw that. And we see Mc- McMahon like kind of yelling at the timekeeper, hey, make sure you're paying attention. Watch for the referee to make call for the submission. Eventually, Austin escapes that particular submission maneuver. 
there's continued battle back and forth between Austin and Foley, and eventually Foley gets knocked down to the floor, and Austin does a suplex onto Mick Foley where his feet crash into the ring, rings the metal ring steps, and that got that gets a huge, huge crowd pop for that particular maneuver. Eventually, there's a recovery by Dude Love, and they're brawling back in the ring, and Dude Love sets up for a sweet shin music. And Austin ends up blocking the kick, twists around, and Foley and causes Foley to twist around. And Foley goes for a short on clothesline dive towards Austin, but Austin ducks, and Mike Kyoto ends up getting hit with a clothesline from Foley. Foley ends up getting the mandible claw on Austin, but there is now no referee to take the submission or to do a shoulders count to the to the canvas for a one two three. We see Vince McMahon crawling about two-thirds of the way into the ring to try to shake the referee and revive the referee while Foley has Austin down the mandible claw but is not successful in getting Kyoto up. Uh, Austin recovers from the mandible claw and ends up back body dropping Foley over the top rope onto the floor near McMahon. Austin and McMahon begin to rustle back and forth over a chair. Eventually, Austin gets the chair, but as he turns towards Foley, Foley throws a couple of elbows into the chair that end up knocking the chair into Austin's face and head. Foley attempts to pick up the chair and hit Austin with the chair, only for Austin to throw an elbow back into the chair into Foley. McMahon tries to then help pick Foley up, and this is where we see the infamous chair shot where Austin winds up. Is he swinging to hit Foley, but instead he goes high and cracks McMahon over the head, and McMahon just goes down hard face first and is basically immobile for the rest of the night. Uh, Austin throws Foley back into the ring, picks up Foley, kicks him in the gut, hits a stunner, and there's no referee, no referee at ringside to do the count, so Austin rolls over Foley and then proceeds to count his own three, one, two, three in a typical uh, referee cadence. It wasn't a fast count or anything like that. And he declares himself the winner. And all of a sudden we hear Austin's music play. Eventually Patterson, Briscoe, and we see EMTs get up and begin or come down to ringside and begin to try to work on Mr. McMahon and stabilize Mr. McMahon. And Briscoe ends up. Gerald Briscoe goes over to the refer or goes over to the ring announcer Howard Finkel and tells Finkel to announce Mick Foley is the winner due to Steve Austin attacking an official, and as a result, that ends up setting up a rematch for the following pay per view. You know, the educator does a great job of seeing, explaining all the action that actually takes place during this match. But to watch it, it was just I felt bad because Austin and Foley are doing great, but the focus is elsewhere the whole time. Like, between this match, McMahon out earlier, Austin out earlier, I, I guess they thought the timekeeper was going to be their next big star. You know, timekeeper merchandise, timekeeper shirts, timekeeper 316 says, I just went ding, ding. Like, he's got all the tension on him for this. Was this the same ringkeeper during the... Slaughter match. The Triple H Slaughter match, yeah. yeah. It was the same guy? Yeah. yeah. He's getting a lot of play. This, this being so gimmicky and all... This must have been a pay-per-view, if, if I did watch it live and didn't you know, wait to watch it later, that I had to put the VHS in front of. 
because this just seems like such a quick gimmicky ending. Like I'm sure I was watching this going, oh, it's going to be a screwy ending. It's absolutely going to be. I can see it coming. Like this is definitely a, a VHS in front of the clock match. Now the ending though, with what Austin did, I had a weird thought. What if there was a gimmick match where the two wrestlers went wrestling the match had to count their own pinfall. And I think this would really have to be a match in front of fans. But of course you're going to go, you're going to attempt a quick one, two, three, as fast as you can at first. But then as the match gets going, the wrestler, in addition to having to crawl over to pin their opponent, also has to count a three, which would be slower cadence with each time. And I think it could really build up a drama here. No. I like I said, I think you would just get you know one to three, like you'd get yeah. quick counts nonstop. Right, I mean, so you get quick count, you get quick kick outs too, until they both start getting like exhausted and worn down and all, and then the counts start getting slower. But I think I think you would need a fan reaction for this idea too. What would you call it? What what kind of match would that be? I don't know, because now I got to spin where the fans count the three, like all the fans front row just bang against the sides for the three, fans bring the three count match. It could be interesting if the fans were doing in cadence the three count rather than the, you know, each competitor counting their own three. I don't know. I'll workshop it. Yeah, get back to us next week. <laughs> That'll be the first question we asked. Okay. Um, so I think that's going to do it for Unforgiven in your house. Uh, this might be one of the quickest podcasts we've had. All right. Woohoo. We're doing it very efficient here. You know what it is? I, I think the educator wants to get back on his yacht. I do. So uh, anything you guys want to say uh, about Unforgiven? Anything else? be interesting to see where you guys put this in our rankings because I'm, I'm back and forth. Is this on the near the middle? Is it near the bottom? I don't see it as a top tier compared to our other shows, but I guess we'll see what you guys think. Well, I do want to bring up one thing and really – um, I just want to talk to, um, uh, turn your, uh, headphones off real quick, educator. Okay. You got him off. Okay. He's got them off now, Mr. Library. If we can team up here, we can get that international incident six man tag off this top five. If we put the Inferno match up there, it's gone. It's gone next week though. If we do maybe, I don't know what, what the pay-per-view is next week yet. Do you think he'll? Do you think the educator would threaten to quit? I mean, he might use his resources. He's got enough money for the yacht. He might have good enough money for a good lawyer too. We may have to call up the substitute for next week's pay per view. That's, if that's, that's the case. true. That might be a good idea. To do a three on one attack. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll do that then. You can. You can. You can put your headphones back on. Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Right, you okay? Good. Yeah. 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 Good. We're discussing birthday gifts for uh, you. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so why don't we do our top five uh, matches? Uh, best match of the night, guys. I, I think it was personally the Inferno match. I really loved it. Absolutely. For the best match on this card, yeah. Educator? For the card, I, I, I would probably, I guess, lean it. Just, just because of the uniqueness, it's the first time of the match. I, I would I'd certainly lend credence to the Inferno match uh, being the most intriguing of the night. All right. And you don't think it cracks the top five? Me? Yes. Uh, Not even close? No. Well, number five is the People's Posse versus Camp Cornette. Did we get a crowd reaction? I mean, you had had a big crowd here. Huge crowd. 21,000, right? Greensboro. This is North Kakalaki, baby. 
did, did we did we get any crowd pop as big as as we did for for that that people's posse versus Camp Cornette Hellions? No, but I will say it bumps that uh, Quebecers Godwin's match out of six. Yeah, I would say definitely. Which is surprising because I thought the uh, that was the second best Jean Pierre Lafitte match we've seen, but I guess I was wrong during the interview. No, no, you're right. It is the second best Jean. You're right. Because <laughs> at one point, didn't we have Brett and Lafitte? In the top five? Yeah. Well, before we even had five. So. Yeah. <laughs> it still counts. Still counts. Still counts. I guess technically the first pay per view had all five, top five matches yeah. at one point. <laughs> yeah, he, if you want to get uh, he's in the top yeah. five on the list of three. Um. All right. So, w- so because this match doesn't make our top five, we won't argue it. There's no way that we can change the educator's mind on that six man tag to flip it over. So where does this rank on your Jeff Jarrett promo? <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, we've already done that one. Um, so why don't we go right into our pay-per-views um, and see where we rank it. Now, um, you know, on the last show, we kind of had some, uh, disagreements on where the event would go. I think this one's going to be kind of similar because to me, I don't really have a feel on where I want to put it. I'm kind of, I'm stuck on that too. I'm not sure if it's going to be like, let's start in the middle at 10. Would it scrape 10? Should we be in the bottom third? I mean, I don't see it in the top five, top seven. I don't believe at least for me personally, but I don't think it was that bad of a pay-per-view. The uniqueness of both the uh, the uh, Inferno match and the, the main event with McMahon's involvement and McMahon taking the chair shot, I think it pushes it up a little bit deeper in the list than you know being towards the bottom. I also wonder, too, the way of the ending, how much that affects it. Like, if you flipped the Inferno match with the Stone Cold match, and you're leaving with Undertaker conquering Kane and setting him on fire, which to me, if that's what you're building the pay-per-view around is that gimmick, that really probably should have been your last match. But I completely understand, you know, the laying out of Vince and taking him out took precedent over that. Well, the championship always goes on last, right? Except for when it doesn't, yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, Mr. Hellions, where do you think this one lands? All right, I got it in the middle, and I actually debated and went through a bunch, and I can tell you exactly which two I have it in between. All right, hang on. Let me start. Let's start at Beware of Doc, because that was the one that was very controversial um, last um, episode, because, you know, we said maybe that's just a little too high. So um, Unforgiven Educator of Excellence was Unforgiven better than Beware of Dog. I would say so. Yes. Okay. Is it better than a cold day in hell? I would agree. I would say so. Yes. Is it better than Degeneration X? I I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> okay. Is it better than It's Time? This is possibly right about where I am. All right. Well, then, um, for my my notes and my looking up earlier and revisiting the cards. I have it in between Revenge of Taker and It's Time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think that's there. a good spot for this. Yeah. Okay. So I can see that. I can, get, I can concede to that, that it's better than It's Time. The Brett Sid finish with Michaels being involved, without a doubt. I can go with that. Yeah, I think that's a good spot for this. I, I think it fits in well there. Um, just kind of going through 
you know, the list. Of course, let's just break down our top five. Uh, no changes to the top five. At number five is Seasons Beatings. Uh, number four is the Taylor Swift Bad Blood. Uh, number three is Triple Header. Number two is International Incident. And number one is Canadian Stampede. Um, and of course, our top five matches. Number five is Camp Cornette versus the People's Posse. Uh, number four is the Canadian Stampede 10-man tag. Number three is Brett versus Bulldog. Uh, number two is HBK versus Kevin Nash from Good Friends, Better Enemies. And number one is the Hell in the Cell match between Undertaker and HBK. Yeah, guys. So what'd you guys think? Good? Good show, man. It was good. Good show to watch and all. And, you know, it's almost kind of sad, though, because we're getting close here. Yeah, we are getting close um, to the end. Um, So next week, we are going to be covering Over the Edge in Your House. And no, it's not that one. So that's what I will say. Goodness. Um, Yeah, at least we don't have to do this. Uh, That'll be the 22nd in your house in the series. We're hitting the last month of our show here so uh very exciting and let's just take a quick look at the main event for that um once again we get dude love taking on stone cold steve austin in the main event so uh educator of excellence anything you want to say to the people out there watch thank everybody for seeking us out listening to our podcast through whichever podcast apps that they use to find to listen to our show Want to encourage everyone to continue to support the Retro Network and all of the various offerings they have, their podcasts, their content that they have on the website. Want to say thank you to uh, Matt in particular for all of the work I know that you do post-production and editing everything together, the ideas that you come up with for our commercials Um, I I very much appreciate all of your effort that you put into this. I want to say thank you to Kevin. Uh, Your views, your conversations, your spin on things, it really continues to engage us in conversation. Uh, Your perspective and looking at things differently really gets me to take a step back and relook at things in other ways to really look at, you know, to continue that dialogue that we have with one another. So I very much appreciate the time that you guys uh, have in contributing to this, this effort that we have together. Uh, I look forward to doing these shows. And as we tiptoe to the end who are in your house series, uh, I'm starting to get excited for the future plans that we have for things to come. Mass Library, it seems like someone is very, uh, very thankful that we put in all this work so he could be on his yacht all the time. So. I know. I was going to say, if you really want to thank us, you'll invite us out on the yacht. I, I think you, I think we got to take a uh, helicopter from the shore and then it lands right on the yacht. Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Is that from your Hello Pad? It is from the Hello oh, okay. Pad. All right. And then we ride the helicopter. the the helicopter that's funny um i just want to say to everyone out there uh thanks for listening if you like us please leave us a five-star review um it really helps with uh people finding us and and helping our show um and as always you can follow me online at maddie treats Uh, i just want to thank everyone for all the support and of course thank the retro network for everything they do for us as well check out the other podcasts in the um 
the other podcasts in their personal feeds. Also check out that main feed and you get every show in one fell swoop. It's great stuff. I know they got a lot of uh, good things planned for the fall and Mr. Kevin Hellions, why don't you take us home? All right. Thank you to the Retro Network for hosting us. Thank you to WWE Network for the content. Thank you to my two hosts here. Thank you to Richard Reader for our logo. You can follow us across the internet at TRN House Show. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My own personal stuff is at Master's Library. Treats is on at Maddie Treats. Educators on his yachts. And uh, guys, I was looking at the ages of Legion of Doom on this pay-per-view and the Rock and Roll Express and my own age. So I think I have to go beat up some 20-year-olds tonight. And Bart Gunn ends up pitting Ricky, or uh, Jeepers. You're going to have to do an edit on this. Holy cow. Let's try this again. Settle down, JR. Yeah, I know. Settle down. Cool. So, uh, we see Cornette getting into the ring after the double drop kick maneuver onto Bart Gunn as Robert Gibson is trying to do a pin onto Bart Gunn. Jim Cornette ends up launching himself to do an elbow to break up the pin, but uh, Ricky Morton ends up, holy cow, it's not Ricky Morton, it's Robert Gibson. <laughs> wow, third friggin' take on this. Uh, we'll get it eventually. We'll get it eventually. Yeah. It's all that sun poisoning from your it's yacht. Sun poisoning, exactly. <laughs> this has been a presentation of the Retro Network.